When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. end of chapter 2, the Lamanites establish a treaty. Fine, we'll, we'll be peaceful, but again, it's only a matter of time where that's going to fall apart. And sure enough, as chapter 3 begins, the Lamanites are preparing for battle. Well, you're still their commander, Mormon. What are you going to say now? Another rousing address about their houses and homes? No. Chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord said unto me, cry unto this people, repent ye. It's the only permanent solution to this calamity. Repent ye, come unto me, there's faith. Be baptized. You see Mormons preaching the same message that prophets always have. It's the fourth article of faith. It's the gospel of Christ. Repent, come unto me, be baptized, and build up again my church, and ye shall be spared. Forget about fortifying cities. Build up my church. That's the fortification you need, the spiritual kind, the internal kind. And yet, verse 3, I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain. They did not realize that it was the Lord that had spared them. They took all the credit to themselves. They didn't understand that God had granted unto them a chance for repentance. In other words, the day of grace was not fully over. You still have some time left in this preparatory state. But behold, they did harden their hearts against the Lord their God. No wonder they're left to themselves. They refuse to allow God to be a part of what they were doing. Now, Mormon realizes the bad news. They will not prepare themselves spiritually. So what's his only hope? We've got to fortify and fight physically. And so he does, and he chooses an interesting place to do it. Verse 5 and 6, I did cause my people that they should gather themselves together at the land desolation to a city which was in the borders by the narrow pass which led into the land southward. There we did place our armies, that we might stop the armies of the Lamanites, that they might not get possession of any of our lands. Therefore we did fortify against them with all our force. Do you remember back in the war chapters? This is particularly true in Alma chapter 49. About four or five different times in that chapter, it talked about the fortifications they were doing, all based around a place of entrance. That was the phrase that kept coming up in that chapter that by closing off all the other options and giving the enemy only one narrow pass, as we see here, one place of entrance, as we saw there, this is where we're going to fortify ourselves. This is where we're going to stand and fight. This is the place that we must defend to the death. And back then we talked about that as a, as a strategy, a battle tactic, that if you want to attack me, you're going to have to attack this place. And this is the place I am most prepared to defend. Again, this narrow neck of land. 
If you want to come and conquer us in the land northward, you're going to have to pass through this. And because it's narrow, it's easier to defend. I have ancestors that were Waldensians, this tiny little Protestant group that fought against Catholicism or, or at least defended themselves against Catholicism, trying to forcibly return them to the faith. And they lived up in the mountain valleys up in the Alps. In fact, that great hymn that we have in our hymn book, For the Strength of the Hills We Bless Thee, that is not a Latter-day Saint hymn. That is a Waldensian hymn. But when Lorenzo Snow heard about the history of the Waldensians as he served among them, in the Italian mission in the 1850s, he realized your mountains have protected you just like ours have in the valleys of the western United States. You see, some of those mountain valleys, the, the passes were so narrow that the armies of Europe would have to go through almost single file, one by one, to be able to make it through those mountain passes. And the Waldensian men could pick them off, fight them one by one as they were trying to come into their valleys. Mormon is trying a similar strategy here. Let's fortify the narrow neck of land. You see, as we fight those that would attack us in our day, are there certain places that just have to hold? Things worth fighting for and fortifying. The sanctity of the family. The truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. The divinity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those are narrow necks of land that must be defended. And we must do all we can to fortify those places. Now that strategy actually worked several times. In verse 7, the Lamanites come and we beat them. In verse 8, they come again and we beat them again. But verse 9, notice the result of this prosperity in battle. You know the pride cycle. Verse 9, now because of this great thing which my people, the Nephites, had done, they began to boast in their own strength. That's what they'd relied upon. And in those two instances, it was actually sufficient. But it got worse. They began to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren who had been slain by their enemies. In verse 10, they did swear by the heavens and also by the throne of God that they would go up to battle against their enemies and would cut them off from the face of the land. Now, this is a turning point for Mormon because in verse 11, he utterly refuses from that time forth to be a commander and a leader of this people because of their wickedness and abomination. Now, they had been wicked and abominable before, and yet he had led them in battle. He had tried. But the shift here is a significant one. They were still taking full credit for everything, relying upon their own strength as before. But now they're beginning to swear by he the heavens and by the throne of God. It's not just that they're ignoring God. They're trying to replace him. And furthermore, it's not just that they're trying to defend themselves against their enemies, but that they want to go on the offensive. Remember, that was something we saw earlier when the people said, no, let's go take the battle to the Gadianton robbers and, and destroy them in their mountain strongholds. And, their Nephite, and the Nephite leader said, no, no, no. If we go on the offensive, then God will not be a part of this battle. God will only help us defend ourselves against the enemy. That's an important principle, that God prefers not to go on the offensive. He prefers to stay on the defensive, even when it comes to chastening his own people. We'll see that in a moment, that it's by the wicked that the wicked are destroyed. He simply removes his defense. There'll always be other wicked people willing to go on the offensive and destroy the people who have abandoned God. But having tried to replace God and having decided to go on the offensive, 
Mormon says, I'll have none of it. On verse 12, he reflects on the years and years he has tried to lead in righteousness a people prone to wickedness. He says, Behold, I had led them. Notwithstanding their wickedness, I had led them many times to battle and had loved them according to the love of God which was in me with all my heart. And my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. What a glimpse we see in that verse, not just into the hardness of the hearts of the people, but into the softness of Mormon's own heart. He didn't just lead them, he loved them. Notice the source of that love. They didn't deserve it. He knew it. But the love of God dwelt in him. And it was that love that allowed him to love his people. When you find yourself responsible for people that are hard to love, it's not a matter of mustering up some kind of false emotion. It's not even a matter of praying that they will change to become more lovable. Even the publicans can do that, Jesus says at the end of Matthew 5. It's loving the unlovable that sets us apart. And that is the love of God, a perfect love, perfectly extended to those who deserve that love the least. Mormon had loved them with that divine love. He had poured out his soul in prayer to God for them. But his prayers lacked faith, as he admitted, because their lives lacked the works of righteousness. His faith without their works would be dead. And dead is exactly where this story would end up. Verse 13, three times I delivered them out of the hands of their enemies, but they have repented not of their sins. 14, when they had sworn by all that had been forbidden them by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why them swearing by the heavens and by the throne of God was so offensive to Mormon earlier and so offensive to God. And that they would go up unto their enemies to battle and avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren. Behold, the voice of the Lord came unto me, saying, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And because this people repented not after I had delivered them, behold, they shall be cut off from the face of the earth. So God was offended in the same ways that Mormon was. You want to play God? Then be my guest. I will not play God for you. I cannot be your God. You haven't accepted me. And then in 16, notice what Mormon says. It came to pass that I utterly refused to go up against mine enemies, and I did even as the Lord had commanded me, and I did stand as an idle witness to manifest unto the world the things which I saw and heard, according to the manifestations of the Spirit, which had testified of things to come. So he's connecting their history with the prophetic history that the Spirit was manifesting to him. He wanted us to see in our day the kinds of scenes that he was living in his own because of the parallels between them. But I love that phrase in the middle. I was called to stand as an idle witness. In many ways, Mormon had become the embodiment of God at that moment. Mormon was left to be an idle witness because God would have to stand back as an idle witness. Mormon could not lead them into battle because God was refusing to lead them into battle. They weren't allowing him. Fine, you have driven God away, swearing by all that is holy, taking his place. Fine, then you can take my place too. You want to take vengeance when vengeance belongs to God. He will be no part of it, and neither will I. And at that moment, Mormon shifts his attention 
from the people he was trying to lead to the readers he was trying to reach. Verse 17, you see this shift immediately. Therefore I write unto you, Gentiles, and also unto you, house of Israel, when the work shall commence, that ye shall be about to prepare to return to the land of your inheritance. You see, Mormon knew this book would eventually come forth, just like Amaron knew when he gave him the assignment to take it. And since my people won't listen to me, Mormon is shifting, putting all his eggs in the latter day's basket, hoping that eventually we would listen to his words. The Spirit could be no part of the people who were ignoring Mormon in his day, but the manifestations of the Spirit concerning things to come could definitely turn our attention to the book that he was writing. So in 17, he addresses the Gentiles and the house of Israel. In 18, he addresses all the ends of the earth, including the 12 tribes of Israel. In 19, he addresses the remnant of this people. And throughout it all, he keeps talking about judgment because he's watching his own people face the judgment of an offended God. So he takes his situation and expands it into from, from history to theology in a way, from a recorder of history to a writer of scripture, trying to help us see where this all fits in our own eternal judgment. That's how he ends this chapter, writing to all of us. These things doth the Spirit manifest unto me. Therefore I write unto you all, and for this cause I write unto you. Here are the three reasons Mormon has for writing. First, that you may know that you must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yea, every soul who belongs to the whole human family of Adam, and ye must stand to be judged of your works, whether they be good or evil. That's why he keeps bringing up judgment in verse 18 and 19. It's to lead into ultimate judgment in 20. Verse 21, the second reason that he's writing these things. And also that ye may believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. My people wouldn't. I pray that you will. Believe in the gospel which ye shall have among you. And also that the Jews, the covenant people of the Lord, shall have other witness besides him whom they saw and heard that Jesus whom they slew was the very Christ and the very God. It's the second thing I need you to know. Christ is real. He visited me. I tasted and knew of his goodness. I'm writing this record so that you have a second witness. No cause for doubt. He will come to you, house of Israel, personally. That's the Bible. But he has come to us as well. That's the Book of Mormon. And together, these two witnesses will come together to bear witness that Jesus is the Christ. And then in verse 22, the third reason for writing, and I would that I could persuade all ye ends of the earth to repent and prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Isn't that what he's been trying to cry to the people ever since he was a young boy, attempting to preach and then being held back, trying to lead in righteousness? eventually crying repentance to the people, doing anything possible. You see how these three purposes come together in the book that Mormon would place his name upon? We will be judged. Here is a military leader seeing death and carnage spread all throughout the land. You think judgment was on his mind? Trying to cry repentance to a people that would face judgment unprepared? Judgment, Jesus Christ, 
the need for repentance. This is the message of the Book of Mormon. This is a sober child observing his people that are facing judgment and need Jesus so that they know they could repent. And the same is true for each of us. But in spite of Mormon's great desires, and now without his military leadership, the Nephites do exactly what they'd planned to do. They go on the offensive, and they get destroyed. That's the story in chapter 4. The first three verses describe their offensive and their defeat, and then in verse 4 gives the moral of the story. It was because the armies of the Nephites went up unto the Lamanites that they began to be smitten. For were it not for that, the Lamanites could have had no power over them. It's so interesting that they could have survived if they had refused to go on the offensive. That even without deserving the protection of God, they would have had some measure of it if all they had been wanting was protection instead of going on the offensive and attacking their enemies. Verse 5, Behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked. And here's how it usually happens. It is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. For it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men unto bloodshed. Again, you get a sense that even without recognizing God's hand in your life, he will remain with you to some degree and trying to preserve you. But if wickedness gets to the point where you attack and offend God, you want to play God yourself, and so you've cast God out of your life, then he cannot be there to preserve you. And he doesn't have to destroy you. He doesn't have to send the enemy. They're, the enemies are out there. They will come. And without God's protective, defensive hand, you don't stand a chance. Verse 6 and 7, the battles continue. And in verse 8, wow, the Nephites actually win one. But unfortunately, after that military moment of prosperity, we see the inevitable decline into pride. When the Nephites saw that they had driven the Lamanites, they did again boast of their own strength. And they went forth in their own might. And when it's just man versus man, God not taking sides because neither side has taken God, then sometimes you'll win, sometimes you'll lose. In verse 10, regardless of victory or defeat, the Nephites repented not of the evil they had done, but persisted in their wickedness continually. And even in his role as historian, Mormon cannot do justice to this injustice among the people that he used to lead. Verse 11, he says, It is impossible for the tongue to describe or for man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of the blood and carnage which was among the people, both the Nephites and the Lamanites. Every heart was hardened so that they delighted in the shedding of blood continually. Compare that to Captain Moroni. Plenty of bloodshed in the war chapters back in Alma, and yet Mormon, Captain Moroni never delighted in the shedding of blood. Remember, he was able to control his men to the point that even in the midst of a battle, he could call off his troops in a heartbeat. The moment it seemed like the enemy might be willing to make an oath of peace. So different now as the Nephite civilization is about to be completely annihilated. Verse 12, he says, There never had been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi, nor even among all the house of Israel, according to the words of the Lord, as was among this people. And Mormon, from his vantage point as historian, having compiled these records for the thousand years, has every right to say it by way of comparison, by way of superlative. It's never been this bad. 
It even gets to the point in verse 14 that women and children are taken prisoner and offered up as sacrifices unto their idol gods. Human sacrifice, not just inhuman violence. The Nephites are so angry about that, verse 15, obviously, that they retaliate against the Lamanites, but the Lamanites destroy them every time they try until by the time you get to verse 18, from this time forth, the Nephites gained no power over the Lamanites, but began to be swept off by them even as a dew before the sun. There seems to be no hope, nothing to slow the Nephites' decline into destruction. And by the end of chapter 4, I, Mormon, seeing that the Lamanites were about to overthrow the land, therefore I did go to the hill Shem and did take up all the records which Ammaron had hid up unto the Lord. It's like Mormon is realizing, this is it. It is over for my people. There's nothing more I can do for them militarily. I only have one mission left, and it's my role with the records of God. But then something happens, which I think is interesting. In chapter 5, verse 1, some repentance takes place, but it's Mormon repenting, and not of sin, but rather of refusing to lead the Nephites, his people, into battle. They're the ones that should have been repenting, but he repented of his decision to leave them. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, It came to pass that I did go forth among the Nephites and did repent of the oath which I had made, that I would no more assist them. And they gave me command again of their armies, for they looked upon me as though I could deliver them from their afflictions. I really wonder if there's a connection between the end of four and the beginning of five, because nothing had changed on the people's part. They were no more deserving of Mormon's help in chapter five as they had been in chapter four. But what had happened for Mormon? He'd completely given up on them and then gone to find the records, to take out the records that Ammaron had hit up unto the Lord. And I just wonder, if Mormon had been studying those records, seeing the covenants God had made to his people, and the times of deliverance over and over that he'd given them throughout Nephite history, I wonder if that is what gave Mormon just enough hope, just enough mercy, just enough compassion. Let me try one more time. A God of tender mercies has never fully turned his back upon his people, even as they have strayed from him. Maybe it's worth one more chance on my part as well. And so he does. He returns. And they fully accept him. Like this, the best time we've ever had is when we were following Mormon. Again, I, I'm not going to follow his faith. I don't want to follow his righteousness. I don't want to follow that kind of example. But there is something about him and will follow. They looked upon him as though he could deliver them. And that's the tragedy. They still weren't looking to God, who was the real deliverer. Mormon understood that difference. In verse 2, Behold, I was without hope, for I knew the judgments of the Lord which should come upon them, for they repented not of their iniquities, but did struggle for their lives without calling upon that being who created them. Again, tired of living but scared of dying, willing to put all the work into struggling for their lives, but not willing to put in any of the faith to call upon God for assistance. Earlier it was Mormon with no faith because the people had no works. Now it's the people with works, but no faith. Remember, they had abandoned God. They would not call upon him for assistance. The battles rage. 
And the Lamanites marched forth, destroying everything in their path. By the time you get to verse 5, Whatsoever lands we had passed by, and the inhabitants thereof were not gathered in, were destroyed by the Lamanites. Interesting that the only hope the Nephites had was in gathering. We need each other. We have to come together for the common defense, spiritually speaking, even more than physically. In verse 6, they try to stand against them boldly, but it's all in vain because they're simply hopelessly outnumbered. So in 7, they turn from fight to flight, but the only ones who escape are those whose flight exceeded the Lamanites. Otherwise, they're swept down and destroyed. If you're not running towards righteousness faster than the world is sinking towards sin, then there isn't hope for us. We have to be moving faster than the enemy. Now in 8 and 9, Mormon again admits, I don't want to harrow up the souls of men and casting before them such an awful scene of blood and carnage. Seems like there was some kindness on his part in editing the final transcript so we wouldn't have to be exposed to all that he was. And all he'll give us instead is a small abridgment because he dared not to give a full account of the things which he had seen because of the commandment which I have received. And also that ye might not have too great sorrow because of the wickedness of this people. Again, a return to the sorrow he'd talked about earlier. And then again, we see a shift where Mormon, as he did before, stops talking to his own people who wouldn't listen and turns to us, Latter-day readers, in hopes that we will. Verse 10, Now behold, this I speak unto their seed, the remnant of his people, and also to the Gentiles who have care for the house of Israel, that realize and know from whence their blessings come. That is a beautiful invitation to all of the world's Latter-day readers. Remember, the time of the Gentiles will come in. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. And as the Book of Mormon comes forth to the Gentiles to wake them up to their responsibility, they had been scatterers, now it's time to be gatherers. It is up to you. Remember Isaiah talked about this, that the house of Israel would be brought forth on the shoulders of kings, in the arms of queens, that the Gentiles would bring the fullness of the gospel back to them, that it is up to us to care for the house of Israel. We need to realize and know from whence our blessings come, that we are only made partakers of the covenant as we re-extend that covenant to God's original covenant people. Do we remember the labors and travails and pains of the Jews in bringing forth salvation unto us? That's the Old Testament, the original covenant. Do we appreciate what went into that? Do we realize and know from whence our blessings come? Do we appreciate Catholicism and Protestantism for preserving and then resurrecting Scripture? Do we realize the good that has been done by countless generations of righteous men and women that went long before the restoration of the gospel in its fullness? Do we care for the house of Israel? Do we recognize what we owe to them? Mormon does. He wants us to. And so for the rest of chapter 5, he pleads with us, modern day readers. He says in verse 11, I know that such will sorrow for the calamity of the house of Israel. Yea, they will sorrow for the destruction of this people. They will sorrow that this people had not repented, that they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. Are you feeling as devastated as we ought to as we read these chapters?
It's like being a missionary and your heart breaks when you've come to know a family and you're teaching them the gospel and then they decide to just step away. Is that kind of sorrow motivating us to share the gospel with anyone who is willing to hear it? Are we devastated when someone turns away from the outstretched arms of Christ? Verse 12 of his own book he's referring, These things are written unto the remnant of the house of Jacob. They are written after this manner, because it is known of God that wickedness will not bring them forth unto them. I can't give them to the Lamanites or to the Nephites now. Wickedness will never produce them. Instead, the only option is to hide them up unto the Lord, that they may come forth in his own due time. Again, this is an ancient prophet putting all his eggs in a latter-day basket. Verse 13, this is the commandment which I have received. And behold, they shall come forth according to the commandment of the Lord when he shall see fit in his wisdom. 1,400 years would pass before that time came. But it came, and Mormon knew that it would. Verse 14, behold, they shall go unto the unbelieving of the Jews, and for this intent shall they go. Again, what, was, what were Mormon's purposes in writing? They haven't changed. That they may be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't that the boldest print on the title page? What's the purpose of the Book of Mormon? To convince the Jew and Gentile alike that Jesus is the Christ. And that's not all. Back to Mormon 5.14. That the Father may bring about through his most beloved his great and eternal purpose in restoring the Jews or all the house of Israel to the land of their inheritance, which the Lord their God hath given them unto the fulfilling of his covenant. God wants to keep his word, and that word is in Christ. These words, the Book of Mormon, will be an instrument towards that work. 15. Also that the seed of this people may more fully believe his gospel, which shall go forth unto them from the Gentiles, the Book of Mormon will be that second witness. It will back up biblical truth. Because without God's word, what will become of this remnant of the house of Israel in the meantime? They will become a dark, a filthy, a loathsome people. Beyond the description of that which ever hath been amongst us, yea, even that which hath been among the Lamanites, and this because of their unbelief and idolatry. This has nothing to do with skin color here when it speaks of dark and filthy and loathsome. Remember, full integration of society in 4th Nephi and when people chose to become Lamanites again just so that there could be ites in the land that had nothing to do with lineage or race or anything like that. This is spiritually speaking. People who have abandoned God and become spiritually dark and filthy and loathsome. Because, verse 16, we hinted at this before, because the Spirit of the Lord hath already ceased to strive with their fathers. He yielded because they wouldn't. And as a result, they are without Christ and God in the world, and they are driven about as chaff before the wind. No wonder they're blown about. There's nothing weighty within them anymore. There's no building themselves upon the rock of the Redeemer. They've abandoned Christ and God and have been abandoned by them left to themselves, just like they had asked for. And so you see Mormon's lament. Verse 17, they were once a delightsome people. They had Christ for their shepherd. Yea, they were led even by God the Father. He'd seen hundreds of years of glorious history. 
But now, verse 18, behold, they are led about by Satan. They had replaced being led by God to being led about by Satan, even as chaff is driven before the wind. And then he shifts his metaphor. No longer chaff blown about by the wind, but now a vessel blown about by the waves. A vessel tossed about upon the waves. Notice what it's missing. Without sail, there's no way to move forward. Without anchor, there's nothing to hold them firm. And without anything wherewith to steer her, no way to find direction. You sense the danger of a boat with no sail, no anchor, no helm? There's no momentum, there's no stability, there's no direction, there's no agency. You are now fully left at the mercy of cultural currents, of where the adversary would lead you, blow you about. You're an object at rest spiritually, and now you will tend to stay at rest. Or you're an object in a negative motion, and you will continue in that direction until something stops you, and there's nothing to stop you. Verse 19, he continues his lament. Behold, the Lord hath reserved their blessings, which they might have received in the land, for the Gentiles who shall possess the land. It's still promised, but promised to whomever will live up to those promises. Remember, it was the Gentiles that came and then began to scatter Israel. Promises that could have been the Israelites shifted to the Gentiles. But if the Gentiles do not live up to those promises and worthy of the covenants, it will shift back to the house of Israel. The first will be last and the last will be first, but it didn't have to be that way. All could be first. All are intended to be, for God loves all his children. Verse 20, Behold, it shall come to pass that they shall be driven and scattered by the Gentiles. That's the bad news. And after they have been driven and scattered by the Gentiles, behold, then will the Lord remember the covenant which he has made unto Abraham and unto all the house of Israel. That's the good news. And also the Lord will remember the prayers of the righteous which have been put up unto him for them, including Mormon's own. And then, O ye Gentiles, Mormon pleads, how can ye stand before the power of God except ye shall repent and turn from your evil ways? My people wouldn't heed that message. I pray that you will. Know ye not that ye are in the hands of God? Again, that judgment that awaits us all was pressing heavy on Mormon's mind and heart. Know ye not that he hath all power, and at his great command the earth shall be rolled together as a scroll? Therefore, back to Mormon's all-present message, repent ye, humble yourselves before him, lest he shall come out in justice against you lest a remnant of the seed of Jacob shall go forth among you as a lion and tear you in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Mormon paid attention to Jesus' sermon from Micah and Isaiah and others. And then Mormon concludes his record. Chapter 6, which we'll finish with this week, and chapter 7, where we'll begin next week, were meant to be Mormon's final words. In 6.1, he says, Now I finish my record concerning the destruction of my people, the Nephites. I've already shifted my attention from them to you, readers. You're the only hope I have, ultimately. But we marched forth before the Lamanites. I wrote an epistle to their king saying, Can I at least gather my people for our final battle? You see, in verse 2, Mormon wants to make his final stand at Cumorah, he wanted to gather together his people unto the land of Cumorah by a hill which was called Cumorah. 
and there we could give them battle. In verse 4, he specifies that he wanted to go there because it was a land of many waters, rivers, fountains, and there he had hope to gain some kind of advantage over the Lamanites. And at the beginning of 6, he adds that he wanted to make this final stand, having gathered in all his people in one. I do love the three elements that Mormon was focusing on in verse 2 and verse 4 and verse 6. We make our final stand at Cumorah, where the Book of Mormon came forth to bring the fullness of the gospel to a world in desperate need of it. We make our final stand by gathering together to build temples, to be in the garner of God, to stand at his threshing floor. We make our final stand surrounded by living water, defending the gospel of Jesus Christ and defending Christ himself, who gives meaning to that gospel. This is where Mormon chose to stand, and it's where we choose to stand as well. On verse 6, he continues, Behold, I, Mormon, began to be old. He would have been around 74 years old by now and had been fighting Lamanites and struggling with his own people, crying repentance, since he was 15 years old. You think you'd be a little tired after 60 years of this, wondering if anything you had done had made a difference? Well, where he knew the difference lay was in his work not as general, but as historian. He knew the scriptures would play a far greater role than the sword. He admits as much, knowing it to be the last struggle of my people, and having been commanded of the Lord that I should not suffer the records which had been handed down by our fathers, which were sacred, to fall into the hands of the Lamanites. You see where he's, he's pivoting, he's shifting the priority here, as he's done several times in this book. He knew he wanted them eventually to get into the Lamanites' hands, but it couldn't happen yet, for the Lamanites would destroy them. Therefore I made this record out of the plates of Nephi, and hid up in the hill Cumorah all the records which had been entrusted to me by the hand of the Lord. Save it were these few plates which I gave unto my son Moroni. Again, the records upon records upon records that he had seen in the hill Shim and received from Amaron, transferred now to the hill Cumorah. But also this smaller book, these few plates, which he had been carrying and recording upon, now passed on to his son Moroni. And then he describes the downfall of his people. From verse 7 through verse 15, army after army being hewn down by the Lamanites, 10,000 by 10,000, hundreds of thousands slain, with the memory of awful fear filling the breasts of the wicked, every soul filled with terror, until only 24 Nephites remain. Yes, some fled to the south, others deserted over to the Lamanites, but this is it. It's over. He will give us his final message in chapter 7 next week, but the way he ends chapter 6, Mormon's ultimate lament, starting in verse 16, my soul was rent with anguish, he spoke of sorrow repeatedly before. Now it is anguish. It is rent. His soul is torn apart because of the slain of my people. And this is what he cried. O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? 
Remember, that's what he was pleading with all of us for back in chapter 5, that we're supposed to care for the house of Israel. Are they fair ones to us? That we're supposed to sorrow, recognizing that others could have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. Mormon is following his own advice. He can't help it. Behold, if ye had not done this, ye would not have fallen. All of this could have been avoided. But behold, ye are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it that ye could have fallen? These weren't just wicked individuals. These were all parts of families that were meant to be eternal, meant to love one another. Sons and daughters, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives. But now they're gone. A burned out logging camp with neither roots nor branches because hearts of fathers and children never turned to one another and never turned to the Lord. As he says in verse 20, Behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. As I was studying and pondering these verses this week, I just had this impression that Mormon's lament was being echoed by Father Lehi's a thousand years earlier. And so I turned back to 2 Nephi chapter 1, where a dying father is giving his final blessings upon his posterity. In that chapter, particularly to Laman and Lemuel. And can you hear him weeping over these fair sons and daughters, the descendants, his own posterity, for the next thousand years? Think of what he said then in light of what we're reading here. 2 Nephi 1, starting in verse 10. If the day shall come that they will reject the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah, their Redeemer and their God, that's clasped in the arms of Jesus. Behold, the judgments of him that is just shall rest upon them. Yea, he will bring other nations unto them, and he will give unto them power, and he will take away from them the lands of their possessions, and he will cause them to be scattered and smitten. Oh, that ye would awake, he says to these sons, awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound. Awake and arise from the dust, and hear the words of a trembling parent, trembling parent in Lehi, matched by a trembling son in Mormon. Bookends of this book of Scripture, one sorrowing in anticipation, and the other sorrowing in retrospect. My heart hath been weighed down with sorrow from time to time, Lehi says. For I have feared, lest for the hardness of your hearts the Lord your God should come out in the fullness of his wrath upon you, that ye be cut off and destroyed forever. Which is exactly what happened with the Nephite civilization. So Lehi pleads, O my sons, ye fair ones, Mormon would add, that these things might not come upon you, but that ye might be a choice and a favored people of the Lord. But behold, Lehi admits, his will be done, for his ways are righteousness forever. I sense that same kind of being reconciled to the will of God in Mormon when he says, my sorrows cannot bring your return. I tried. I did everything that I could, just like Father Lehi did. But you're gone. You chose. And you didn't choose Jesus. Mormon then shifts, as he did earlier, from history to theology. 
from immediate circumstance of what he was dealing with, living through, writing about the big picture, plan of salvation. And he ends this chapter in 21 and 22 speaking of the ultimate realities that his immediate realities were simply pointing to. The day soon cometh that your mortal must put on immortality. These bodies which are now moldering in corruption must soon become incorruptible bodies. Remember, he's just described nearly a quarter of a million casualties. Talk about bodies moldering in corruption. But he knows they must soon become incorruptible bodies. And then you must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged according to your works. And if it so be that ye are righteous, then are ye blessed with your fathers who have gone before you. Just like he said before, that's the whole reason I'm writing this. That judgment is real, but so is repentance. And that through Christ, you can be prepared for judgment. It can be a glorious day when justice is administered to the repentant. He concludes then, Oh, that ye had repented before this great destruction had come upon you. It's what the Nephites had said as they lamented, weeping through the three days of darkness back in chapter 10. Oh, that we had repented before this great destruction had come. But behold, Mormon ends, ye are gone. And the Father, yea, the eternal Father of heaven, knoweth your state, and he doeth with you according to his justice, and, thankfully, his mercy. Mormon is trying to balance those two divine attributes, just as Father Lehi did before him, trusting in God's mercy, but also recognizing and honoring his justice. Mormon knew the justice of God. He feared it on behalf of his people. Why do you think he cried repentance so tirelessly throughout a lifetime of being ignored? And what kept him going through it all? Because he also understood the mercy of God. He had tasted and known of the goodness of Jesus. He had been visited by the Lord in his youth, and he knew what it felt like to be clasped in the arms of Jesus and only wanted his people to feel the same thing. No wonder Mormon shifts from his immediate audience to his ultimate one, to you and me, Latter-day readers of the Book of Mormon, in hopes that we will hearken and heed his message, his call to repent, that we might come with godly sorrow to offer to the Lord a broken heart and a contrite spirit, that we might come unto Christ so that we can be clasped in the arms of Jesus.